For longtime music fans in Wilmington, North Carolina, there never has been and never will be another rock club like the Mad Monk. This year marks the 25th anniversary of when the Monk closed for good back in 1996. And yet, a quarter century after the last band played there, the club continues to live on in the local imagination. There are two Facebook groups with thousands of members each that relive not only the good times, but also the memories of seeing the many, many bands who took them on stage. It's a long list. Punk legends like the Ramones, Pop Axe, like Hootie and the Bluefish and the Dave Matthews Band. Hard rock and heavy metal from Pantera, Motorhead, and Helmet. Hip hop from Run DMC, Public Enemy, and Ice Cube. And that's not to mention the hundreds of local and regional acts like Sidewinder, Faith Collapsing, and After Forever, who played the Monk's two locations over the 13 years of its existence at a time when Wilmington was considerably smaller than it is today. Welcome to Cape Fear on Earth, the podcast exploring the legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, John Staten. This is my first episode of Cape Fear on Earth, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. We're a Gannett paper that's part of the USA Today Network. This week on the show, we'll be talking about the Mad Monk, which first opened in March of 1983 on Market Street near the College Road overpass, kind of where Caraba's restaurant is now. It was owned and operated by Charlie Maltzby, a gregarious, larger-than-life figure, who also owned the popular Red Dogs Bar in Wrightsville Beach. 30 years ago in 1991, a fire at the original Monk location forced Maltzby to move the club across College Road to what was then called Marketplace Mall. The space the Monk used to occupy is now the Tin Pin Alley Bowling Alley. In that location, the new Monk, as it was sometimes called, continued what Maltzby started at the original location, bringing in a steady stream of local and touring bands before closing in 1996. Here with me to talk about the Mad Monk, what made it special, its history, its legacy, is Jeff Reed. Jeff has a long history in Wilmington as a musician, a music writer, a producer. In fact, we're recording this podcast in Jeff's home studio here in Wilmington. Jeff was there for the Monk's early days in its original location while I was more of a regular the new Monk after graduating college and moving back to Wilmington where I grew up in 1992. All right, so Jeff, what are your first memories of the Mad Monk? You were you moved back here in the early '80s, and the Monk opened in about '83. Yeah, right. I think I think my first memories of the Mad Monk basically was the marquee, going back and forth uh, down Market Street because. Uh, uh, it was extraordinary to see five to six uh, dates of uh, live music on uh-huh. it. And then you'd always wonder, uh, communication being the way it was back then, and no cell phones and internet and all that. I mean, it was just a, a great way to uh, tell you what was happening in the club. So I think my first impression of it was like, hey. I mean, th- there's some things happening. And it brought to memory a lot of, uh, of course, there were regional bands that were on the marquee, but then there'd be some national acts, too, that would catch your attention that you may or may not get uh, over the radio and certainly not over the TV at the time. Yeah. So, uh, but I think that that was essentially, uh, you know, my first impression of it in terms of not even going, but just saying there's something happening over there. Yeah, well, and then I know some of the early bands that played were like the Romantics. Um, you know, that was one of the 
um, bands that people talk about a lot. And it was, but that sound was like very distinctive. You know, I, I even have vague memories as a teenager of kind of driving past there and it's kind of this dirty looking, kind of ramshackle looking building. Uh, I remember going there later, but what was it like in there? What was it? I mean, I know it wasn't like, you know, an architectural marvel or anything. But. No, well, originally uh, that, that whole parcel of property was a junkyard. I mean, literally a junkyard. Oh, wow. And uh, over several acres, I don't know what the, the actual acreage was, but it was a junkyard. So essentially that building that became the Mad Monk uh, was the, the chop shop. That's where they took apart things in those cars and sold the engines and, wow. the, and the radiators and things like that. So it, it was a block building, okay? And so that when they did take it over uh, to make it a venue, it was basically a square block building that they were able to frame inside and build the large stage and the upstairs and things like that. So essentially that's that that was what it was like inside in terms of where it had come. But, you know, the other thing was the huge, huge parking lot. Yeah, uh, I do remember that. It was, uh, you know, certainly not, there might have been a few little asphalt coverings of it at one time or another but basically it was a it was a uh, huge dirt parking lot it was a mud pit it was yeah if it rained it was a mud pit absolutely so i think that that was uh, uh really kind of an incredible little thing in terms of the parking lot was so huge because in in venues prior say the crest out wrightsville beach from from 73 to 81 i mean parking was always a problem as it is even today well. with the residents of Wrightsville Beach and such like that. So sure. it, was, it was just uh, carefree and you were able to park it, no problem. But that that was basically my first impression. And the fact that there were there was uh, a lot of musical genres represented on that marquee and what they were bringing into town was uh, pretty fantastic. Well, then, you know, and I've heard, you know, different people say that it was pretty much a hit from day one because I think it was previously a club called The Four Winds. Right. And then um, it pretty quickly, Charlie Maltzby took it over and kind of uh, changed its personality a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, even Four Winds had the outdoor bar section, okay. and which I think was also something that was quite interesting, uh, even though it was kind of semi-closed in with screens and uh, kind of a patio thing, but it was yeah. huge. Uh, and he would had a bar out there, and he had a stage out there, and, uh, you know, that he would have reggae bands coming in. And you've got to remember, in early 80s in the United States uh, reggae was uh, pretty authentic at that time these bands were from Trinidad and Tobago and and, uh, those kind of things so um, uh, the constant and the continual uh, entertainment was a lot of variety well that was one thing I always heard was that Charlie was one of the first people to really bring reggae bands here because you know I mean I don't really remember hearing about reggae till in the 80s, well, Bob yeah. Marley and all that. But yeah, I mean, and, and certainly was not getting any rare uh, airplay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, not, not in Wilmington, that's for sure. And and, and even across the, the nation, I mean, Marley, Bob Marley and them in the mid-70s started to hit it uh, in the United States, but it was still an extremely small genre. Yeah. But with the beach communities and that kind of thing, um, uh, and then they became groups... Uh, around the college towns that started to develop. Uh, the Amateurs, yep. uh, Raleigh Gray, guys. and Sunfire. Uh, these were 
were regional bands uh, with some connection to the islands. Yeah. No, uh, Raleigh Gray, I, they were uh, based in Chapel Hill. I actually interviewed them when I was in college and sat wow. on Raleigh Gray's front porch. And he was a great guy. And well, then by the late 80s, that's kind of when I really kind of started taking notice because I was in high school. You know, you would see like Run DMCs coming through there. I would come back home from college in the summers and go see a band like Sex Police from Raleigh, kind of a funk, kind of a Chili Peppers uh, thing going on. The Circle Jerks, the DBs. Oh, wow, man. And then, well, then it kind of, I'd, I'd say like within five years, it's almost like it's got, you know, icon status and not even, you know, just a five-year-old place and it's already, you know, you know, it's almost already a legend. Like, I think Blue Velvet got shot there in 86 and that's... And you and you kind of have a theory I like to explore that kind of how it's like I'm the perfect storm of factors that kind of just led the Mad Monk becoming this kind of legendary I think, institution. I think it all starts with the ownership and the management first. Let's let's go ahead and throw that out there because you know running a bar in any type of situation uh, is very very difficult. So dicey. And so the longevity has to go with Charlie and his uh, his partner and his staff over Absolutely. the time. But I think in Wilmington there really was a perfect storm. I think uh, if you look at um, the the history and the cultural things that were happening at the time in January 1979, uh, liquor by the drink passed in New Hanover County after so many years of trying to get that passed, right. and that was a huge, huge. Um, uh, had a huge effect on tourism, had a huge effect yeah. on the local uh, climate as How well. So? Well, just the fact that you could go somewhere and not have to bring and 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 have a mixed drink, which right. growing up in Wilmington in New right. Hanover County and and essentially a dry county, uh, that uh, kind of made you feel like an adult, uh, <laughs> to right. say the least. Uh, but. But it also offered uh, a more ser- more service for the industry, be it uh, the bar service or the restaurant industry. I think at that point uh, you could become a pl- private club, which yeah. the Mad Monk was, yeah. and it uh, you would you would sign in and have a membership, and then you could serve. Uh, uh, alcohol uh, mixed drinks. Uh, with a restaurant, I think the percentage was you had to serve 51% food and 49% f- uh, 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 alcohol. Yeah. And so they kept those percentages pretty well. So it was huge in terms of us being a part of uh, the real world, if you if yeah, you can put right. it that way. I mean, growing up here, I mean, we always seemed to be a backwater. We were always kind of looking at California or, or the other areas uh, um, and saying, you know, we want to be more like them, you yeah. know. And so I think that was essentially one of the first things that happened. And it changed the industry and uh, in terms of the restaurant industry. Yeah. And ultimately, it changed uh, uh, the entertainment and the folks that could get here because obviously uh, high profits in that business and you were able to turn that back into creating entertainment. Uh, the other the other major thing obviously is it's been uh, explored in many forums is the mu- movie industry. I mean, yeah. there was another thing that kind of gave Wilmington 
uh, street cred, if you will. Uh, I mean, you know, at that time in the early 80s, we were looking at essentially about 120,000 people living full time in New Hanover County. Now, when you compare it today of 240,000, we were still a small backwater little town. This is before I-40. And so when the movie industry came and it being a small town, everybody was a buzz about who was oh seen gosh. where, what was being filmed. Uh, there was a real um, romance with the industry at that time, as there is kind of now, but the, the luster's kind oh, of... Oh, no, but it out. was totally different back then, because just to sidetrack for a second, I was in high school in the late 80s and going down and being an extra and, like, you know, dream a little dream and, you know, standing next to, like, Corey Feldman and Corey right. Haim. Right. That was, it was, you know, it was fun. And then they actually filmed, you know, a very pivotal scene of Blue Velvet there at the old Mad Monk right. on the stage there, and that that had to give it a little more cachet and just, like... You know, yeah, street I mean, cred, like you said. Yeah, Wilmington was just a buzz with the movie industry. I mean, it, it really, really was. And uh, it just made us feel more a part of and and making us feel special. Yeah. You know, more so than maybe other cities in North Carolina at that time. Well, and then, and then I love the other idea of, you know, how the... That was the MTV generation, right? I mean, MTV came out in, you know, early 80s, mid 80s. I mean, by the mid 80s, it was huge. And that had to have just kind of pumped up the whole music industry, made people more interested in bands, wanting to go see live music. Yeah. Um, when when MTV came on board was August 1981. And my gosh, uh, you know, the radio stations, I really haven't done a count on them. There were a few FM stations, but mostly AM here at this wow. time. So not only were you able to hear music that you normally would not right. hear over the airwaves, uh, you were actually seeing the artist. And uh, it it changed everything. It changed everything nationally, internationally, everything, and changed the music industry. But as a result, it just it, it became more familiar to folks, yeah. Yeah. and it, uh, it created uh, uh, to where you could see a, a band and see what they look like rather than you know, listening to them for years before you even right. could tell. So. Yeah, well, like the Romantics, they were a huge MTV band. I mean, and um, right. they played there at least a couple of times. Right. Someone like, uh, you know, Run DMC would not have been who they were without MTV. Right. Or certainly a D-Light, I know they came, that was a little later, maybe at the New Monk. They were, you know, also huge on MTV. So. Right, right. And then, so it just kind of, and, it, and I was not here when the Monk burned down in 91. Right. And I think it was kind of maybe almost at the height of its popularity. Right. I mean, it was, and then all of a sudden it just kind of, I think people were just out of nowhere, you know, the monk is gone, right? Yeah. The monk is gone and, uh, you know, what are we going to do now? That kind of thing. And I, it, it did rebound. I'm not quite sure uh, when he kind of collected himself and, and reopened again. But, you know, all during that period from 83, say, to 91, I yeah. believe, is when it burnt down. I mean, you look at the, the vast changing of, of the music industry in terms of what live music, especially, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, uh, you, you've got the synthesizers. Music changed yeah, the yeah. synthesizer. You have the drum machine now. You have all this, and which is a part of this visual and, and MTV thing. But the other part of that is that uh, 
record company, uh, there was independent record company distribution, which meant that these smaller bands, yep. like we've mentioned before, uh, Chapel Hill bands like the DBs or, or somebody like yeah. that, uh, could have a record and then could get on MTV. And yeah. as a result, then that gave them some street cred. And next thing you know, they're playing at the Mad Monk. And so uh, it was a it was a great listening club. There was a mosh, if you will, it right. became a mosh pit. But you know, people did dance, but mainly it was a kind of a listening club. Yeah. Well, I definitely remember some mosh pits there in my day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and we should maybe make it clear to people that it wasn't necessarily wall-to-wall, like, nationally known headliners, right? I mean, it was mostly, I feel like, the kind of the, you know, the bread and butter was these local, regional bands that had to be, you know, two-thirds you know, or three-fourths of who was really playing there. And then, you know, maybe once a week, once every other week, there was a pretty big exactly. name coming through. But with the advent of these clubs, uh, you know, the Mad Monk in Wilmington, the Attic, in yes. Greenville, uh, you uh, you created the circuit, um, uh, whatever it was in in uh, Chapel Hill, uh, the cradle, cre- yeah, yeah, yeah Cass Cradle, all those places. You created kind of a little mini circuit for bands to play and to get their music out and to make a little coinage and to pursue their dreams. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, that's where your sidewinders come in. Yeah. That's where uh, you know later you had a band called Storms that was from Wilmington mm-hmm. that uh, you know toured regionally. Uh, you know, Sponge Tones from Charlotte I saw there, uh, and so you were able to the the the. The ability to reach out as a local band, especially if you're even from Wilmington, uh, Charlotte or, yeah. or Greenville or those kind of things, then uh, you were able to have these clubs to be able to uh, play your music. Yeah, well, I mean, just in my recollection is that some of these local or regional bands would often draw better than, you know, because the national acts are... Ticket prices may be a little more, you know, they'd get a good crowd, but it might not be a stone cold sellout where you got someone like, you know, after forever and tickets are like five bucks and there's a thousand people in there. I cannot tell you the, the, how excited it was as a local musician to play the Mad Monk. You had kind of, you've, you've kind of arrived, you know, as a local right. band, that kind of thing. And so the other thing that we, people don't really talk about, but as a musician at that time and been being around a, a lot of folks similar in interest, it was uh, something that inspired you to play. You had yeah. made it if... You know, you played the Mad Mock, you know, and uh, and so the word of mouth, all that. So, yeah, those cl- uh, crowds tended to be a lot larger. Yeah. How often did you play there? I guess how many I times? Played, I only played the Mock once with a band, and it was a pa- part of a uh, charity event in, uh, I think, April 1986. It was part of the We Call This Place Home, which is oh, okay. yeah. Brad Thomas thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had seven or eight bands play it was for the burn unit of the uh the hospital at the time and it was just absolutely fabulous uh and to be able to be a part of that and to reach out and have a be a part of the community of musicians but also to play that stage it would just kind of legitimized you 
Yeah, and, and like I said, my memories of the old monk, the original monk, are hazy at best. I was only, I was underage for a good deal of it, and uh, I do remember seeing the sex police there. My brother would go see the, all the heavy metal bands like yeah. Motorhead and yeah. Pantera, and they would um, get huge rowdy crowds. And I think that at some point they kind of had to... I know that they used to be that they, they had put up no moshing signs because you know moshing was new, moshing was scary. Did and you weird. mosh, John? I did not. You know what? I was I was kind of at the edge of it. I would kind of like you know push some guys by. But I would I like to see that. Actually, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't in there getting uh, you know my head knocked off or anything like that. So I think toward the end, especially in the in the nineties and and then the second Mad Monk, as yeah. we're terming it, became more of a hair band metal yeah. type of a club and um, for. What Whatever reasons, yeah. uh, you know, certainly was uh, a lot of folk were playing that, and a lot of uh, people were following it as well. Uh, so I wasn't really uh, much of a patron to the, the the older club as I was yeah. the newer club. I saw them back to the uh, the the first Mad Monk, yeah. Leon Russell there. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, uh, Jason and the Scorchers. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, these were just what off the top of my head, and Sponge Tones for the first time. Yeah. Uh, those kind of things. Well, so. and then what I've, the people I've talked to, including uh, Terry Kraft, who worked at the you know the original, and then she kind of followed Charlie Maltzby over to the um, the uh, New Monk in '91 when they reopened there. She said that she would start taking him to, you know, conferences, South by Southwest. Right. He starts to meet all these booking agents and all right. these music industry people. And that's when they kind of became, in the early 90s, it seems like they kind of became more of a well-oiled machine, bringing yep. all these acts in. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, for everyone, I mean, that's when you really got people like Marilyn Manson in there and like uh, Diggable Planets from MTV and D-Light from MTV. Along with all these local bands, well, we've, we haven't mentioned the Ramones, and I'm not oh, sure. Ramones, yeah. I'm not sure what what uh, what version of the Ramones that was. Um, people tell me I yeah. saw them, but I don't remember. <laughs> well, um, I heard there was there was a lot of going. I think you mentioned to me earlier. You know, a lot of people went to the Mad Monk. A lot of the memories maybe uh, never got fully formed because yeah. of different things that were going on. But, but uh, you know, the, the the charm of the place, I guess we can wax poetic and look back at it, uh, yeah. you know, because, but, you know, physically, in terms of where that club was yeah. in Wilmington and or New Hanover County, it was really considered the outskirts yeah. of town. Oh, for sure. There was nothing there. <laughs> you had the overpass, which was only two lanes at the time. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, uh, you know, other than uh, Hieronymous Restaurant, and still there, uh, which the is still there. And these were old houses that had been converted. Glenn converted that to a, uh, to a restaurant. Uh, you know, there really was nothing there. It was literally the outskirts of town. So it kind of it kind of was like a roadhouse in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, it was kind of like uh, tucked away and, uh, you know, it was kind of like our little secret. Uh, so there there are all those kind of things, and as you think about it, you can kind of remember all these little nuances of it. For sure. Well, and then, you know, well then, which is very different, I think they kind of modeled the inside of the new Monk after the old one. It was different. It was basically in a strip mall, let's face it. Um, yeah. The Marketplace Mall is basically a Did it have the balcony on it? They did have a balcony. We'll see. The old, I'm told the original was more of an L-shaped balcony. Yeah. The the second one, he kind of wrapped it all the way around, like built a big shoe. wooden balcony. Yeah. There was an actual pit built into the floor there. Yeah. Um, 
and you know kind of a little railing where you could kind of be back uh and uh it would get uh, i remember people telling me you know i think someone told me that used to work there you know they that they held about a thousand you know quote unquote legally because uh wow you know, so sometimes uh you know it would get pretty it would get pretty crowded in there and it was um uh, helmet played there helmet was a big uh Paige hamilton great kind of jazz hard rock player they were very popular. The um, other thing, too, and uh, about both of them, in terms of competition locally, yeah. there really wasn't anything else like it. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, with liquor by the drink starting in '79, I mean, it took the the restaurant industry a few years and our bars really yeah. a few years to catch on to to where they are, uh, where they were going, and so it was still very young and. And and in the process of of all that, so there yeah. really wasn't any. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm trying to think of what would be considered competition in that time period. And I, I locally, I don't really know where you could take a a band and and uh, play loud music and 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 bring in four or five hundred people. Yeah. That was like maybe Jacob's Run downtown to some extent. It was a little smaller. Oh, you know, not a, not a, not tiny. Um, that would have been later, I think, in the eighties, yeah, probably. Yeah. But then there was, you know, and then there was always, you know, and they've uh, Front who, Street News yeah, downtown. Yeah. People who've worked there have been very frank about, you know, Charlie was very Charlie Mossy was very, you know, what if you want to play here, you need to only play here. Right. And um, you know, that was kind of, you know, his way of kind of, you know, making sure that he could get a crowd for these local bands, which ironically, I don't know if ironically is the right word, but ironically, that exact same policy is the kind of thing that kind of began to spell the uh, beginning of the end of the Mad Monk in the mid-90s when the House of Blues um, announced plans to open in North Myrtle Beach. And uh, we all know about the famous, you know, blackout zone around the House of Blues it where truly bands was. weren't yeah. going to play. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a kind of a limbo period in the in the in the late 90s for Wilmington in terms of those type of venues. And I think yeah. what you saw uh, as a result, and maybe for for the for your listeners, it basically meant that House of Blues artists, that if you played there, you signed a writer or a waiver saying that you would not play within a certain amount of right. time uh, and a certain distance from that. And sometimes it'd be six or eight months. Well, if you know anything about touring bands, uh, you know, usually it's a one shot deal. So we would, a lot of the opportunities that we found uh, uh, coming from the Mad Monk um, uh, were dried up. And I think then you became, you started to see the smaller venues like your uh, Soapbox yep, and yep. Cowboys. Oh, man. I remember uh, Cowboys was great know, in the 90s. And, that was really and, small. Yeah. So you had the smaller venues. And as downtown started to yeah. develop its renaissance, as uh, we say, uh, you know, there were these little venues down there that were kind of doing it all, but could not... Uh, could not uh, uh, handle the capacity or the charm yeah. to some degree uh, of what the Mad Monk was doing. Yeah, and then I think another factor, and you know, people I've talked to have said, you know, a lot of the bands that kind of you know came up in the Mad Monk, like Hootie and the Blowfish, mm-hmm. Dave Matthews, you know, playing there famously for a hundred people before anyone right. knew who they were, and then they right. would come back, and then the next time would be bigger the next time, and bigger right. the next time, and then the next time they came to town, they're playing outside. I think they kind of maybe lost. That's the, you know they kind of graduated their class right yeah and then they're then the, maybe the bands coming up behind them 
weren't drawing, you know, maybe like uh, you know Hootie and the Bluefish were, for example. Yeah, it's interesting you 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 mentioned Hootie and and probably Dave Matthews too because you know uh, from Columbia, South Carolina. However, they played a lot in the beach communities along the coast. And what was brilliant about that is that they'd play a lot of times in the summertime when there were a lot of tourists. And these tourists would bring these memories or maybe they bought a record or a CD or whatever they were peddling and went back to Ohio and went back to North uh, New York and went back to where they were from in terms of uh, visiting here in Wilmington. And as a result, Hootie especially developed a, a pretty good strategy and a marketing plan by developing these crowds uh, and fan base in other parts of the country, even though they were not getting airplay and even though they were not uh, playing in those places. Yeah. And so it kind of set the stage for them. And I think a little bit of Dave Matthews happened that way, but certainly with Hootie, that's the case. Yeah, and then interesting, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about MTV earlier, you know, by the mid 90s, they're not playing as many music videos right. they're doing like the real world right and all these reality shows and they're still playing some music videos and all that but um maybe you know the charm had uh kind of the bloom was off the rose to some extent there's still plenty of touring bands don't get me wrong there's right there's plenty of bands playing at the monk right up to the very end in 96 but i think it um i think the house of blues had they had announced plans to open i want to say 97 um late 90s I feel like Charlie Mosby kind of saw the writing on the wall. Things were maybe starting to get a little rough already. He's heard about this kind of clause to where, you know, bands who play the House of Blues, the nice, newer, bigger, better paying House of Blues, you know, maybe they're not going to come to the Monk anymore. So I think that's when Charlie's decided to kind of pull the plug. He already had another business, his bar Red Dogs out at Riceville Beach, so he had something to fall back on. And Cannot, cannot underestimate his influence and his, oh, his, man. his ability to, to maintain this. Not only to say that it was getting tougher and tougher to, to operate a bar. Uh, oh, not only because of of uh, responsibility of uh, serving liquor, um, yeah, but also the DUI laws and things like that. It just became uh, more and more complicated. And if you are an entity and a yeah. private citizen like Charlie was, then it, it you know it certainly compounded uh, your decision making process of whether or not to continue or not. Well, sure. And then uh, we should. I would be remiss not to mention because at one point the monk almost had its kind of its own publicity organ and. Uh, Juice Magazine. Right. I remember Terry Kraft telling me going to the Star News at the time, trying to get write up of some band or another that had a kind of an edgy name. And they're like, "Well, we're not going to write about that band." And then Charlie was like, "Well, why don't you write your own? Uh, do your own magazine." Yeah. yeah. And then Juice Magazine became actually Juice Magazine still exists. It's based out of California now, but um, so they had their own kind of little, uh, you know, magazine for a while that was basically, you know. Publicity for the monk. So, you know, as we wrap this up, what do you, I don't know, what do you think the legacy of the monk is? I mean, for one thing, I can say they were, you know, reggae is still very popular in Wilmington, and yeah. it started with Charlie Maltby it did. bringing reggae bands into the monk. It did. I think it's the longest, as we were discussing earlier before yeah. we went on air, is basically it's the longest term uh, music hall that that we've had in contemporary time, uh, you know, uh, and so you're almost talking about 13 years, which is a generation of folks, and yeah. uh, uh, I think that that's probably its main legacy, and the 
<clears throat> excuse me, and the D, the do-it-yourself uh, mentality of Charlie and being able to innovate and and the process of being able to adapt to all these things that we were saying, more people yeah. being able to adapt to the mo- movie industry and catering that and uh, being able to... D- to adapt to more of the local bands and becoming more prominent for regional things. Uh, You know, it's not a static business, and he was somebody that actually uh, had a great vision. So I think that that's it. And uh, I think there is a uh, kind of a a want or a need for that to come back. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that that was a very special time. And, um, you know, I guess we, uh, as you get older, everybody says Uh that was the special time but (laughs) truly you know we looked at some of these cultural things and population and mtv and and the movie studio and those kind of things you can kind of put it all together yeah well and then you know the clubs that came after you mentioned the soapbox um you know bougie nights which is still there you know we're going to see what things happen uh after the uh, pandemic shakes out right uh, you know but it was you know you know we were both there it was a special time it was a special place so uh Jeff, I really appreciate you coming to talk John, about this, thank man. you, man. It's right. great, man. All right, well, maybe, uh, you know. And you sound great with your mask on, by the nah, way. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to keep it on. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Cape Fear on Earth and our look back at the Mad Monk. We'll be back soon with another chapter of Wilmington history. Till then, make sure you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content from each episode and links to all my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every Thursday. Sign up for the newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, John Staten. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Additional editing was done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear on Earth by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And you know what? While you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream this show so you never miss an episode. While you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear on Earth. Till then, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.